Welcome to One Weird Trick, a podcast giving advice for better living. Your hosts, Aaron and Cecily, have zero legal, medical, or psychological qualifications to give advice. Please consider any advice you receive from them as being from well-meaning, but human and imperfect friends. Please consult actual professionals for any serious legal, medical, or mental help you may need. And now, here's Cecily and Aaron. Welcome to One Weird Trick, the show where we share little tips and tricks to living a happier, healthier life. I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Cecily. And we've got a great show for you today. We do. First up, Cecily's going to talk about the many, many stories coming out lately. Uh, people speaking up about uh, people preying on young women. Uh, mm. This has been a lot. It's been across many different industries. It's almost like uh, part two of Me Too. You know, yeah, it is. The, the, except it's the, the reckoning for everyone. Edition. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's the intersectionality. Me too. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, and I'm gonna share a personal story. So just know this is another kind of heavy topic here, and oh. so consider this your content warning. All right. Uh, then I'm gonna wrap up my beginner's tips for social skills that I've been building up to uh, for the past two episodes. Then we're going to have our advice segment where people are looking for COVID compromises, tips on not being creepy, and when it's a good idea to rekindle an old flame. Cecily, mm. what is your topic this week? <laughs> so as you mentioned, my topic this week, if you're unaware, lately there have been lots of stories coming out about young women, young as in under 18, saying that they're preyed upon by older men, mostly in positions of power, <clears throat> such as being a famous stand-up comedian or a popular Twitch streamer, because it's a lot of those, uh, surprisingly. Um, and I just wanted to talk about my experience with a predatory man. When I was 15, I was sexually assaulted by a 25-year-old teacher multiple times over the course of about six weeks. Um, it was reported to the police. He was arrested, spent time in prison, and many years after that on probation, and he'll always be a registered sex offender. So I guess I'm lucky in the sense that I, f I feel like justice was carried out in my case. Mm. Um, and what happened to me was terrible for all of the obvious reasons. But it, it was also terrible because it caused this rift between me and literally everyone else in my life. Um, my parents, my siblings, my friends, my classmates... The, the police were really only interested in getting their man, so they bullied and intimidated me in interviews. As a non-sexually active 15-year-old, I'd never had a gynecological exam before, so before I had a rape kit test performed on me. Wow. Um, I was given a, a little paper cup full of pills to swallow. I, even now, I can't tell you what they are. I assume maybe some anti-pregnancy. yeah. Um, maybe they gave me some kind of, uh, what's the name of that drug? The the one that chills you out that they give you before surgeries and stuff like that. Oh yeah. Like Halcyon or something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Some benzo. I hope. <laughs> um, the doctors and nurses, cause it's, it was an inner city hospital, like within that downtown district, mm -hmm. they were just very dry and unkind not actively cruel, but just unkind to me. Um, news trucks camped outside of my house 
and got these already obscure shots of our roof and the bushes outside so that they could have something to run alongside their story. Mm. And even though I was a minor, and though my information should not have been disclosed, it's not hard to miss that camera's pointing at your house. And Yeah. Especially, you know, the people closest to you in your neighborhood are going to know. I know where that house is. Right. These are people I go to school with. Yeah. People I've grown up with. Um. So, yeah, it became pretty obvious who was involved. Um, and shortly after that, my classmates were calling me a whore and other fun, colorful things in the hallways at school. Sure. Um, I mean, that's really only the tip of the iceberg that I'm willing to share here. But, but I will say that the trauma of how I was treated after my assault is, has lasted longer than the trauma of what actually happened to me. Uh, the, the, the young women coming forward right now are so brave. I mean, you heard how I was treated by professionals. So imagine it's a celebrity you're accusing and you don't have 15 years of therapy and healing under your belt. The only way for them to try to get justice for themselves is to take this very public approach because people, you know, feel safer in, in numbers. Um, I can only imagine if they had tried to bring these accusations forward offline, mm. it just would have been silenced or settled or something like that. And it would have continued happening. But, you know, strangers on the internet are just being unimaginably cruel to these women because I don't know, you watch that guy stand up special once and you feel the special kinship to him. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the big counter narratives I've seen where it's like, well, you look at these DMs and you look at the text messages and these girls were flattered at the attention and all that. And, um, you know, on a I'm a big fan of The Expanse. And last night, it turns out there's a big thread about Cass Anvar, who plays uh, Alex on that show. It's a great character. Uh, I think he's 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 a, a great actor in in that role. Um, but there's just a ton. It's not like yeah, I've 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 said this publicly. Like you know, when an, an accusation comes forward, you know, women are capable of being shitty, evil people as much as any man. Um, you know, making be circumspect. But when you see the one accusation become two, and then three, and five, and then it's it's never it's almost never just one. And with Cass, it came out. Um, like by the boatloads with lots of evidence and stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, if you're a 15 or 16 year old and you're a big fan of the expanse and maybe you've got even a little crush on Cass Anvar and he slides into your DMS, it's entirely natural reaction to be flattered by that and to chase that attention. And what's interesting is a lot of these women are like talking about this stuff that happens 10 years after the fact because they didn't they weren't aware of the extent that this was predatory and they were being groomed, Um, you know, and it's only when they get into the place where like they're in their 20s or even 30s and they look back and like that was really fucked up. Like, why did they why did that person do that to me? Right. Um, I feel I, the same way. Yeah. I mean, that that man was arrested and everything, yeah. and it still took a really long time to process that it wasn't actually my fault, and I wasn't asking for it, and all of the other victim blaming type of things yeah. that happen. Um, but yeah, there's a real human cost to using children sexually. 
uh, it, it just inflicts a lot of lasting damage. And, you know, a sexual preference is a big beard or thick thighs. Mm-hmm. Being sexually attracted exclusively to women who are under 18 makes you a pedophile. No matter if the girl is 17 and she looks like a woman, it, you know, being attracted to women just because they're under 18 is is what makes you a pedophile. And I think a lot of people are having a hard time understanding that. Well, I think it's also because society itself is having a reckoning by proxy because for a long time, um, you know, having sex with a teenage girl um, has been seen as kind of like this tongue in cheek ideal. Right. Like Britney Spears. And you have Britney Spears, the countdown to her legality, you know, legality in quotes. The fact like the the term jailbait is like, oh, man, if you didn't go to jail, you know, and people, you know, you see the the creeps on the internet come mm-hmm. out and be like, well, you know, the age of consent in some countries is 14. Right. And, you know, back in the, you know, settler days, people were being married off in 12. And like, yeah, we own humans as property. Yeah. And, you know, we burn people at the stake and we fucking cut off eight-year-old boys' balls so they'd sing real pretty in church choirs. Like, this is, this is an insane defense of... Um, what's clearly, you know, like the, the women are, it, it's something that makes them feel, you know, like even if it's initially exciting, um, it almost never ends up that way. Um, you know, because you have an adult who has an adult relationship with a child who's not ready for it. Mm-hmm. And when they inevitably move on, um, you know, you saw this in the, like the Michael Jackson molestation documentary that the, the you know, like the. These these boys were flattered by the attention and they were disarmed by it um, and they it, and it was very overwhelming and hot and heavy and this guy's putting all this pressure on them and then they go on to some other infatuation because there's always another 15 or 16 year old or 14 year old or whatever to slide in to their DMs and and start flirting and getting them to send you nudes and whatnot and. Um, you know, it's, it's like, you know, uh, up until like the last few days, I felt like this is like, oh, these are sleazebag comics and these are Twitch personalities and what do we expect? But, you know, now we're starting to see, you know, established, respected actors and, and, and people that you wouldn't, you know, you would expect to behave, uh, better than this. But again, you know, um, society's got to stop with the sexualization of, of young women. And, you know, I, I said that like, that's kind of been the tongue in cheek ideal, um, it's, it's also a joke if you're a man, uh, if you're a boy and, you know, like it's, this is pretty tr- uh, trite at this point, the observation that like whenever, um, a teacher molests a male student, um, if the teacher is attractive at all, it's all a bunch of like, Oh man, I wish my English teacher would do that. Blah, blah, blah. And again, you're thinking about that in terms of a horny 14 year old that fantasize about that teacher and how not like what that the emotional toll of that would do to you. Right. And what would happen when, you know, they dispose of you or like it, it's the, you only realize in retrospect. Um, but I don't know, like society has got this very uh, still to this day, very kind of primitive view of this and a kind of uninformed view. And they, they don't take it as seriously, especially, um, you know, when it comes to older teenage girls or any kind of teenage boy, they just don't take that kind of thing very seriously. Right. So, yeah, believing women takes absolutely no action on your part. Uh-huh. You just have to believe them. You don't have to reply at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's always better if you support them, though, mm-hmm. because we all know women or are that woman with one of those stories. 
And I just feel like I'm telling my story now because I feel strongly that once we can all agree that everyone has a story and women aren't liars looking for attention, I think it'll also be easier for men to speak up about their abuse as well. Because mm-hmm. that's, we haven't even cracked into that yet and it's coming. Um, and I think all of us together can stop these cycles of abuse. What role do you think coming forward and talking about this um, has as far as destigmatization, the the victimhood of this? Um, Because, you know, it does seem like uh, there's two extremes where it's like, oh, the woman is drug, like in your case, and accused of being a whore, leading the man on. Or the other extreme of that is, oh, my God, this, this terrible traumatic thing happened. It's a defining incident in your life. Right. Um, do you have anything, I guess it's, <laughs> do you have anything, do you, do you have any, like, uh, that's something I mean, I've kind of wondered about, like, it does, it changes you materially, whether you like it or not, because you, you, you know, a lot of people will say that you were a child and then this person took your innocence and they took your virginity and these took yeah. these things away from you. So now everyone starts treating you like an adult. And that's one side of it. And there's the other, there's the fact that you do have to grow up really fast to start handling these adult emotions that were put upon you. Mm -hmm. And it, does that answer your question? Yeah, no, I was just wanting to know, because like, I think that, um, like I said, neither of those narratives are are satisfying. You know, obviously the one that says the it's the teenage girl's fault is bullshit. But I the mean, other one that's like, oh, this person is you know you know uh, traumatized and damaged goods and and this is a, a like a you know like calling it a life defining event event. It's definitely something that probably I don't know. I wouldn't say yeah. I would. I mean, life defining. I don't think it defines your personhood. I there don't think go. it should. Um. You know, there are some cases of sexual abuse where you are like physically have to bear the scars. Sure. And that's in extreme cases. And I think that's a lot of people, their minds go to when you think of like rape or sexual assault. It's mm-hmm. got to be, it's got to be violent. It's got to be horrible yeah. and traumatic. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, like you said earlier, a lot of times it's the, it's the emotional toll that it takes on you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think the first uh, people don't a lot of times victims unfortunately there's not a better word for it don't like to be defined as victims mm-hmm. they don't like to be treated like victims they just want to be treated like people who are respected and understood and right they can move on from that it took me a very long time like i said it's been 15 years and i think some of the major understanding i've done has been within the last five you know because all of this, uh, all of our collective consciousness, and I can only speak for, I guess, America, <laughs> all of us are kind of defining and understanding what what problems we've had systemically, like with sexualizing young women and the Black Lives Matter thing. It's, uh, yeah, I think we're all trying to understand and heal. Uh, or I, I've got a, I got a, a, a tough topic switch to to go for from here <laughs> because we've gone from talking about the ways, um, you know, society pre- uh, uh, preys on young women, especially, and takes advantage of them. 
Uh, and I'm here to talk about sharpen up them social skills. <laughs> so uh, this is a very tough act to follow, but uh, I did want to I did want to wrap this up. Um, and there's, you know, other than ceding my time to, to, to talk more with Cecily, is that should I what, is that what I should do? Do you want do do you want to just do another 15 minutes on this or keep talking about the subject or I can I can I can put social skills on the in the fridge, you know? No, I, I mean, I think it's I think it's really important and it's an important thing for us to be thinking about. I know we have an, a lot of issues to be thinking about right now, but, you know, if you're out there, like I said, if you know that woman or you are that woman, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, strength in numbers here. If you want to write in and talk to us about it, I, I'd be happy to talk about the subject more. But uh, we're mostly an optimistic, positive podcast, so... Let's talk about yeah. let's talk about how we can connect with people. We still more. have happy, full lives dis- d- despite <laughs> yeah. uh, our individual uh, mental, emotional, physical traumas. Right. Um, and again, I, I talked the last few weeks about uh, building up social skills. How social skills are. Um, it's not something that's innate, you know, people do have innate inborn advantages in terms of charisma and attractiveness and, and, uh, you know, upbringing that gives them advantages, but, uh, social skills are not like some mysterious arcane thing that you either have or you haven't like, you know, magic in the Harry Potter universe. Some people, you know, some people are born squibs, Mm -hmm. some people are born wizards, (laughs) Harry, um, but it's something that we can all practice. So I want to talk about like some, these are kind of like advanced intro things, uh, the first one I want to talk about is vocal practice and presence. Um, when talking to people, it's just a pretty obvious, basic thing, but you have to be understood. And anything in your voice that makes it difficult for you to be heard is something that you can work on. Uh, when I say things uh, as far as uh, you know, you know, defects could be a person that is a very quiet talker, so that people can barely hear. Or someone that like doesn't enunciate or mumbles. Um, you know, there's other things. Um, and how, how do you how are you uh, aware of these things that are happening? How do you fix them? Uh, there's a lot of ways you can go about it, but it all comes down to, of course, the P word practice. Um, you can read a few paragraphs from a magazine or a website or a newspaper out loud each day, maybe before you go to bed or first thing in the mirror or first thing in the morning when you're you know, after you get done brushing your teeth is, you know, do a minute or two of, of reading into the mirror. Um, it's even better if you record that on your cell phone. Um, or any kind of audio, just cell phone because everyone's got one now, uh, to play back later. And that's that's going to be super cringy the first few times you do it. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, but that feeling will pass. And once it does, you can start paying attention to like your pitch, uh, the volume of your voice, the pacing. If you notice a lot of word whiskers like um and like and ah, you can work to reduce them. Although I've been working to reduce those for like the last 10 years. And like, man, I don't know if I'll ever get the NPR level well, I don't think I'm ever going to be Terry Gross. I've got a one weird trick for that. How do you do that? Uh, I heard a theory that people fill in between their words with um, ahs, and things like that because they want to think about what they're going to say, but they also want to indicate to the other person that they're not finished speaking. So if you just keep filling that, um, then you're going to think that the other person's going to jump in and say something. You know, it's weird because like I've been thinking a lot um, about I have a bad habit of talking over people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if anyone's listened to this podcast or any of the podcasts I've done, um, it's one of my least attractive uh, uh, public facing habits. Um, sometimes I fart in a bedroom, uh, but that's that's private. No, <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and he Dutch ovens me. That's his no, worst I, habit. No, I never. I, ne- I never. <laughs> ne- you know how I feel about the Dutch. Uh, <laughs> also, my racism gets the Dutch, at least attractive quality. Um, but I do tend to, and I've, I've been thinking about that a lot, and I've realized that, like, my mom is an over-talker. And I wonder if, and I also did tend to indulge in um, us, and I wonder if that is related to where uh, I'm afraid of being overtalk and I like offensively overtalk. I think so. Yeah. Sounds like it. <sighs> anyway. I think your problem is that you have a thought and you can't hold on to it and listen at the same time. Yeah. So you got to have it. You got to get it out there. Yeah. It's uh, it's probably a little squirrel in the cage. But, I, you know, again, it's uh, any anything can be overcome with enough uh, uh, patience Alcohol. and preservation. <laughs> preservation. Um, so you want to pay attention to those things uh, and, and see if you can work to reduce them. Things like, you know, up talking or trailing off your sentences. Like my dad's real bad at that. He'll be like, hey, yeah, I know I went to the store and then, you know, I kind of went. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Wait, I, I, you started strong. What? The, it's like you're running out of breath or something. Um, but you can you can fix that. Now, a few of my friends have had success with uh, the Toastmasters. Are you familiar with this outfit? No. Um, this is a club where people support each other with the goal of becoming better public speakers. Mm. Um, it usually meets like twice a month. Um, like uh, I first was uh, made aware of it at uh, when I worked for Sally Mae because some of the big companies like sponsor these things internally. Um, but I, I just did a search and there was like 40 different branches within 20 miles of where we live here in Cincinnati. So <laughs> that doesn't it seems like overkill. But <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a lot of people wanting to, to work on this stuff. Um, so. The thing is, as it's 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 a good way to give get practice and feedback, and you work at like you know it's it's progressive. Like you might do, give like some public reading, um, and then like you know a minute or two presentation. You work up to five minutes or whatever. Um, it's very inexpensive. Like it's twenty dollars, I think, to join, mm-hmm. and it's like a forty five dollar due every like three to six months to support like you know wherever your local club is meeting. Um, and a lot of places due to COVID are doing like I notice uh, most of the clubs are meeting online, which might be even a little bit like, you know, if you're intimidated with this stuff. Um, uh, but I think this is really good. And one of the reasons that, you know, some people say I'm a it has been said that uh, despite my over talking and my ums and ahs, uh, I am a pretty good public speaker. And it's because as a Jehovah's Witness, like when I was seven, I was enrolled in this theocratic ministry school, which is essentially a religious Toastmasters for Jehovah's Witnesses that we would be assigned. Like my first assignment was like you read eight verses in the Bible out loud to the whole congregation and your heart's hammering and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, after a year or two of that, it was, you know, then add a 30 second intro and outro to those Bible verses. Um, and the brother that was conducting the school would assign a point to work on, like pitch, pacing, modulation, and he would give you specific uh, criticism on, on that um, or uh, not crit- criticism, critiques. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I'd go Toastmasters rather than Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, but what the are you key is, for? the key is practice, practice. Uh, another tip is positivity. Um, a lot of people fall into this kind of Debbie Downer trap that, you know, you strike a conversation and it's like, oh, you know, my, uh, sciatica is acting up and my dog died and my truck's broken down. And, uh, you know, I've, uh, despite all my efforts, I've never, gotten you kissed a girl or whatever it is um but like you know we talked about last time about keeping conversation kind of light um that stuff is really a buzzkill and it's not a great way like that's stuff that you should share with intimate friends not like new acquaintances and people that you're like practicing conversation on Mm -hmm. um and if 
the other person starts getting negative. If you find yourself in a conversation with a negative Nelly or a, a Debbie Downer, um, try to pull them out of it. Like acknowledge, oh man, that sucks. That sounds rough. Hey, uh, you got something fun you're doing this weekend? And you know, um, try that. But but it's important to keep things kind of positive and light, uh, especially when you're uh, conversing with people for the first few times. Yeah. Um, an easy tip to fall back on. Um, this is kind of intermediate territory. If you want a conversation with someone that's actually going to lead to somewhere, let's say it's a new coworker, um, a person at a, a meetup that you might want to befriend or a cute boy or girl, uh, there's one universal truth you can usually rely on. And that's that people like maybe even love to talk about themselves. Oh, yeah. There's certainly exceptions to this general rule, but in general, you can't go wrong with stuff like, oh, what do you do for a living? Insurance claims. Well, how do you like that? Have you been doing it long? You see, you ask a question and then do some follow-ups. Uh, or what do you like to do for fun? Oh, you're in the movies? Uh, that's really cool. What what movie are you really into right now? Uh, what about it, it uh, is has got you taken with it? And all the other preceding rules we talked about apply. You know, if they seem uncomfortable, uh, maybe they feel like you're prying because you're asking all these questions, kind of back off. Or if they're giving non-committal one-word answers, same kind of deal. You know, you're not connecting and forcing the connection is just going to go badly. But usually people are happy to talk. Um, and eventually, you know, the goal is that they'll eventually turn the tables and ask about you. And then, hey, you got a conversation going. But, you know, a lot of people are not great at social skills either. So... At this point, after a few questions about them, you can maybe try to insert yourself in the conversation. Like, you know, oh, what do you do? That's interesting. How do you like it? Oh, you've been doing that for a long time. Oh, wow, 10 years. I've only been at my job for a year. Uh, I'm still in the honeymoon phase. And with that prompt, most people are going to come back. Oh, well, what do you do? And then again, you got the conversation going. Um, and then they got a chance to learn something about you. And that's how you build a rapport. And that's what leads to friendship, intimacy, etc. Um, it's important Where not to like... Fun. it's important not to do this stuff like right off the bat um because a lot of times when you ask a question i'm talking about redirecting to yourself like if you ask a question like hey what do you do for a living oh insurance agent oh well let me tell you uh i sold insurance one summer door to door and it was blah blah you know you come across like you're trying to one-up them or you're you're just looking for an excuse to to talk about yourself Yeah. yeah yeah Uh, on the other hand, if you just pepper them with questions and you never reciprocate, you start coming on across like some kind of government agent man. You're doing <laughs> an interrogation, not a conversation. Um, but I think this is a good kind of overview of the basics of kind of like, um, you know, people skills. And again, the idea is to practice this on a wide variety of people uh, to get this continual practice. Um, another mistake people th- uh, make, I think, is like waiting until someone, like they try to prejudge who's going to be cool. And that usually is the people that look like you. And and, and that's kind of like goes back to like, you know, junior high and high school. It's like, oh, you look for a kid that's got the band that you like shirt because you know that you got mm-hmm. something to talk about. But really, you know, you're wanting to, you're going to miss out on a lot of relationships if you say, oh, that guy's got dirty hands. I don't want to talk to him, <laughs> you know, or this girl looks stuck up or this person looks too posh or this person looks too poor or whatever. Right. You know, you, you've got common sense, be safe, but like, don't try to unnecessarily prejudge adults on on, on how they're presenting. Talk to everybody. Yeah. 
Go right up to someone, pull their earbuds out, and start a conversation. Don't want to do that. <laughs> Probably be a bad idea. Um, but, you know, the whole idea is to keep getting that practice. So when you get to a point where you need those skills because there's some kind of pressure, maybe it's a job interview um, or it's that cute boy or girl we've been talking about, mm-hmm. you're going to be ready to go. And you'll, you'll you know, it's always going to be nerve wracking to do something for the first time uh, under pressure. Um or I guess just to do anything under pressure. Like, you know, if you're um, a high school basketball superstar and it's your first state championship, you're still going to have your heart probably hammering. But, you know, it's it's a difference between going there with a solid skill set that you can trust versus, you know, being a person that we talked about in the first week and just getting called down from the, the crowd to shoot that game-winning shot. <laughs> right. So keep practicing. And, you know, even if you bomb... That's okay because you can keep practicing and you'll be even better prepared for the next opportunity. And you'll learn a valuable lesson, which is rejection's not fatal. <laughs> um, and it's not indicative of future rejections either. Except for some women. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah. Women rejecting men and getting murdered for it happens all the time. Oh, <laughs> God. Shit. Fuck. Yeah. Damn. All right. I, I I worked this hard to swing swing things positive, and then whoa, we're right back in the shit. <sighs> yeah, okay, but someone rejecting you is not fatal. That's fair. Yes, I'm talking from my privileged white experience of a six foot two, <laughs> fairly imposing person. Have mm-hmm. not been threatened by rejection. All right, we got some emails. We do. We're ready we to do. go on to the advice segment here. If you would like to send us an email, you can do so at owtswizbold.com. And maybe we'll see you in one of these here outlines. Our first one is from Creeper Conscious. I wouldn't be surprised if you were heading there already or I missed it, but it seems like you're on a natural arc of explaining to the uninformed guys out here what being creepy is and how not to be creepy. Might be cool for the audience to hear Cecily's experience with being creepy. I think you guys have today. (laughs) And if Aaron had that moment where he learned and realized how he'd been creepy in the past and how he changed. Changed. Yeah, I could probably list a couple, but the one that jumps out of my mind is I was in my early 20s and I was walking downtown and it was after it might have been after a Gen Con or something. It was pretty late at night, but I was kind of like um, not really thinking about things. And there was a woman I don't even know what she looks like or but she was about 12 feet in front of me. And it was probably like, again, one o'clock in the morning and night downtown Indianapolis and I was just walking back to my car, car garage. And after about like a block or two, she whirled on me and she says, she, I think she said, would you fucking stop following me? You fucking psycho. And like I had barely registered her presence thus far. And I was like taken aback. And, you know, um, I, of course, came back. You stupid bitch. I didn't even notice you. <laughs> no, I actually it's like, oh, God, I'm sorry. And like, I. I think I just changed direction and like walked back around the corner and like, you know, waited a bit. And I, that's probably ridiculous, but it made me realize like in that context, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, a big guy and I was falling very close to her, you know, again, 12 feet. That's not a long, that's, that's enough to hear those footsteps coming up mm-hmm. and maybe it sounds like they're getting faster. And it was one o'clock in the morning. It was downtown. She was alone. I was alone. Hell, the street could have been dark. Um, and that was one of the first times I started thinking about like, you know, oh, this is the way I occupy space and this is the way it makes people feel. And I think that 
this is something that may, I don't know. It, it might, might be a useful rule of thumb. But I kind of feel like if you've gone through life and you've never been aware of making a woman feel uncomfortable, then you probably made lots of women feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. because it's not hard to do. And a lot of times it's not even something you've done that's fault. It's something that, again, you haven't considered the way you occupy space, the way women occupy space. Right. It's lacking self-awareness. Yeah. And that can that can make you creepy. Now, if you're a guy listening to this podcast, you're like, oh, shit, I've never made a woman feel creepy. Oh, am I a creeper? Um you know, the only way to be sure is to find a trusted friend. Doesn't have to be a woman, um, but it has to be, you know, uh, uh, another person with a level head and kind of ask them, like, you know, how do I come across? Like, you, you know, a good friend of yours, uh, preferably a female friend, uh, preferably someone that's not like your family member that would, you know, like your sister, or your mom that might kind of be tempted to lie to you. But like, hey, I, honest appraisal, like, how do I come across to people? Um, or have I ever made you, you know, I, I don't know if you ever want to say like, I've ever made you feel uncomfortable, but like, you know, um, having female friendships is, and just friendships, platonic friendships, um, is a very powerful tool, um, to help you understand and interact with the opposite sex better. Mm-hmm. And probably the same way for women, like, you know, having, you know, male friends to bounce ideas off and be like, is this crazy? Is that crazy? Um, is, is useful. So like, yeah, I've definitely had a couple of those moments. Um, and as it's, it's kind of been formative, especially as I've read more and more experiences. Um, and it's something that's driving me crazy because I've seen a lot of tweets, um, as a reaction to this another round of like me too, the next generation. Um, a lot of people like, you know, I can't wait to flash forward in 30 years when the human race has gone extinct because people don't know how to flirt anymore, blah. And it's kind of like, Man, if you think that like consensual activity is not sexy, I mean, there's definitely ways to do it. Like, you know, um, I've never and this is something I've done consistently in my adult like post 30 relationships is like if I'm making a first move with a girl, if I'm leaning in to kiss her, like to hesitate and say, I'm going, you don't have to ask for permission. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause even some women say that like, that's like, if you like, Oh, can I touch you here? How about here? Like that's kind of a boner lady boner killer, but just say something like, I'm going to kiss you now mm-hmm. and then pause and see mm-hmm. like, are they pulling away? Are they looking at you? Does it look like, and then, you know, if, if you kiss them and then they don't kiss you back, say, was that okay? Like, I promise you vaginas are not drying up over that kind of behavior. <laughs> right. Or if they are probably a red flag, oh, you know, man. respecting my boundaries just gets me dripping wet. Yeah. No, but I've seen some women too, that like say like, Oh, this is the death of romance or the death of flirting. Like if a man can't take charge and you know, like eh, there's, I mean, eh. n- maybe <laughs> not the first time, maybe not the very first time. Yeah. You don't have to ask every time you don't ask me every time you kiss me. Yeah. But, you know, when you're initiating contact for the first time, it's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be really sexy. Yeah. And if you escalate, it's it's important to, like, do that on, like, any kind of escalations. Like, if you're going from kissing to, like, petting, you know, petting to sex. Like, mm-hmm. it's, you know, and it's it's never a bad idea to to check in. Um, and it can be it can be very sexy. Those are all good, good points. The only thing I would tack on to that is um, I think there's all, something creepy about uh projecting confidence versus just being confident you know i'm i'm thinking of a guy who's just like got a lot of bravado 
that can come on really strong because they think so much more highly of themselves that they tend to not respect you very much or tune into like, uh, you know, cues that they're being creepy. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I never, cause I always advocate, especially for guys that tend to, to describe themselves as shy, um, to fake it till you make it with confidence, like find, you know, what a person that you think looks authentically confident and, and copy that. But it's like one of those things where, you know, like cocky people should probably fake humility, <laughs> fake humility and mildness until they make it. And like shy, reserved people should probably fake confidence until they make it. And then, well, I mean, that's not the same thing. I'm talking about, you know, if they're faking it, they're still being confident, not projecting it. Hmm. What's I, I guess I don't know what the difference is there. Uh, like I said, or like you said, you know, holding yourself confidently and just being assured in yourself. And the other version is just like, you know, bravado. And But what if you're actually afraid and, inside, you know, that's what I'm saying. Like if you're actually timid and nervous uh, and you're applying to fake it till you make it, then that is projecting I, some kind of bravado, right? I don't think so. Huh. It's what always felt like me when I was working on this. Mm. Like I was putting on a bit of an act. Um, and then eventually the act becomes genuine. And if you stop practicing, you lose, you know, you kind of kind of lose all that. But I, I understand what you're saying. Like, there are guys who are just like spitting crazy game and, you know, they do it like indiscriminately to several targets and they portray themselves as Don Juans and whatnot. And yeah, mm-hmm. but I don't know, because I don't have I don't have nearly as much experience with dealing with those type of dudes as I do like guys that are like, oh, God, I feel like I'm helpless with women or I'm hopeless with women. What do I do? Right. You know, I don't know what to do about these fucking Don Juans and Romeos. And <laughs> if you have one weird trick on how to bring some of those dudes, hold out to hold them down, how to bring them <laughs> down to earth, uh, please send it in to OWT at swizzbolt.com. All right. Let's move in. Uh, move in. <laughs> let's move on to gift horse i'm low-key freaking out about the economic impact of this covid especially on small business owners i know a lot of boy, you and me both i know a lot of places are offering the option to buy gift cards but to be frank it feels weird to spend enough to make a difference buying cards just for my husband and i and also it can't be that healthy for two people to eat out that often but every year my husband and i probably do spend something like 25 to 50 dollars for each of our family members and christmas gifts so my suggestion, which I'm going to frame as a one weird trick to keep it on brand, is if you've got the cash to spare right now, considering spending some of your quarantine time doing some online Christmas shopping. Christmas in July. Mm-hmm. Finally. Uh, it'll be something that you can you can do. Re- you know what? I'm actually unironically for Christmas in July. Let's just fucking reset this bitch. <laughs> get the Christmas tree out. Get the lights going. Get the fucking peace on earth. Goodwill towards man. <laughs> Uh, buy, buy your gift cards. I'm 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 hot for this idea now, gift horse. Uh, but yeah, do your online sh- Christmas shopping for friends and family, and get everyone's gift cards now at small local businesses to help them out. You'd even go all in and buy one for yourself too, and make it a family dinner on your tab or something like that. I feel like it's a good idea that helps me balance my own justifications for spending a considerable amount of money on eating out while still feeling like I can do more to help uh, than just stay home. Uh, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great idea. If it's, if you got money burning a hole in your pocket and you want to support local businesses, but I mean, you're right. That's a lot of gift cards. Mm -hmm. But yeah, (laughs) I I think that's great. That's like, if you can, if you have the fourth up, but, um, 
And, you know, the, the reality is, though, a lot of these things are just really hard to solve um, with individual movements. Like um, now, if there's a groundswell, like if you could get like some kind of like, you know, buy on buy in like some kind of social movement um, to where, you know, everybody's on board with this Christmas in July thing for the, the to help people out uh, and get them by during this COVID period, you'd have something. But like my my one weird trick is we need to demand our fucking government. Uh, step in with systemic solutions to systemic problems and you know a pandemic the whole nation's going through yeah it's not uh, us up to us to redistribute our unemployment money back and forth to yeah, support each right, other right right i mean it's, i'm not saying not do just like everyone right. should do like charities of their choice but like we can't rely on those individual efforts to tackle these these problems and the, and you know the fact is we've given twelve hundred dollars to people um who's you know three months ago three months ago and that's it. That's your COVID help from the government. And that's that's not probable. That's not sufficient. So um, I like this idea. If you've got the wherewithal and the funds to do it, I even like the Christmas in July. If you want to like make it a, a, a nice little slogan. Send us your Christmas trees. Chris, send us your July Christmas trees. dot com. Tag I, us on Instagram or Twitter. I'm always talking shit about the people in tropical climate celebrating Christmas. Well, it's 90 degrees in Ohio. Oh, that's what we do. We do tropical Christmas. Y- get, yeah. Let's plant a bunch of palm trees in the backyard. I bet they make Christmas theme Hawaiian shirts. I they know they to. do. They have to. There's got to be some kind of Hawaiian gift shop selling Santa Claus and like poinsettia type of, you know, Hawaiian shirts. We yeah, it's uh, we're gonna make this happen. Yeah, yeah, we can make Christmas twice a year. Uh huh. Sure. You you like uh you you put up the tree on Memorial Day weekend, just like you got the Chris you got the Thanksgiving lead up to it. We can we can make this happen at least for COVID. Uh, but yeah, I I, I like that idea. But also, uh, let's demand. <laughs> better leadership um, from from our uh, government officials. Agreed. You ready for the next email? Yes. This one is from Travel in the Time of Corona. Mm, it's a very romantic title. Uh, I have a dilemma and could really use your advice. Background info. My, in January, my husband, who's 34, spent two weeks in the ICU due to a severe stomach bleed. Holy shit. He was supposed to have a procedure in April to check his healing, but COVID has prevented that. Mm. He's also recently started taking SSRIs, which increases your chances of gastrointestinal bleeding. Oof. This well, is... Do you want to be depressed or you want to bleed yeah, inside? Yeah. Do you want to die or mm. feel like dying? Choose, <laughs> motherfucker. God. He's had some chest pains since starting the meds, so I'm basically on edge at all times with a hospital bag constantly packed. We've been quarantining as much as possible since he was in a delicate state, and because the doctors told us that we needed to be extremely vigilant about his health since he could bleed again at any time. Now the current dilemma. His family on the opposite coast is planning a vacation for the week around July 4th. They rented a cabin in the woods, bought our plane tickets, everything was scheduled before I even knew what was happening. It's clear from the plans being suggested in our group chat that his family is not being careful about COVID. They want to do things like eat out at restaurants uh, before we go to the cabin, which is something I'm not even considering doing for the next several months. Mm. There's also the possible COVID exposure in airports and plane rides to consider, particularly since it's a holiday. Pretty sure this is going to be miserable, anxiety-filled experience for me. So how would you guys handle this? Back when the tickets were booked, my husband said that we could cancel if needed, but it doesn't feel like we can. Mm. I'm increasingly worried about traveling across the country during a pandemic and also being two hours from a hospital if my husband has a health emergency. I've tried to talk to him about it, but he just brushes it off and insists everything will be fine. 
He also recently expressed that he resents how my fear is keeping him from living his life, even though I feel I'm just following CDC guidelines in his doctor's orders. How do I talk to him about this? What can I do here since I want to keep him safe, but don't want to be the wife that controls everything and ruins family plans? Mm. How do you two handle decisions like this where compromise isn't really possible? No matter what we decide, one of us will essentially win and the other will be unhappy, but it feels like a lose-lose. Man, sometimes life is like that. Um, you know, when you got really strong. I mean, and that's the thing. Like, I feel like a lot of people uh, are being tested by this thing, you know, mm-hmm. um, because and it's something that like I'm not not even saying that it hasn't caused us some some personal um, friction in uh, our working relationships and our personal relationships with me and Cecily. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I think that between you, me and Jim and some of our friends and family, there's all levels of like, uh, I think we're all under the category of quote unquote, taking it seriously. We're masking up when we go out, we're minimizing our contact. We've, you know, moved the studios to our homes. Um, but you know, we do fall on different, you know, ends of the, the uh, on that end of the bell curve. We're at different levels. Like some of us are more concerned and more vid- vigilant and are more stringent about when they're going to open up. And then you got this against the backdrop of like what it feels like is that the country, you know, and I, and, and I think I've been pretty circumspect when we talk about this, like. You know, uh, I think it's a bad idea to reopen the country. I think it's a bad idea to not wear masks. But, you know, there's seasonability. There's this and there's that. And like, you know, I'd be surprised if there's not an uptick in outbreaks. But, you know, I don't fucking know. I'm not a virus. Maybe, maybe. But, you know, in this last week, we've seen the shoes starting to drop. And like uh, right now, today, um, we're recording this on Thursday, um, uh, the 20, what, the 26th? 25th. The 25th. Um I just read that Houston is at 100% ICU cap- uh, capacity and ventilator capacity. Now, I'm sure it's probably not too hard to shuffle them around to surrounding, you know, Texas is a big state, but, you know, you could start shuffling people around to places that aren't as affected. But still, you look at that, you look at some of the places in Georgia and Florida, even in southwest Ohio, where we've been doing things mostly well from the jump, there's starting to be some really sharp concerning upticks on this. So... Um, on the other hand, you know, your husband is the person who is at risk. And if his desire to hang out with his family and engage in fellowship with them is higher than his adult consideration for his own safety, I don't know. I, I, I yeah, I, that's a that's a tough question because it's like uh, you can't care more about this issue than the person affected, you know, like a. Um, if a cancer patient decides they don't want to do chemo anymore, uh, the family can cry and yell and scream, but you know, it's their decision to make. Right. Um, and that's the thing. Like most of this is like, I'm always thinking in terms of like, Oh, I don't, I don't want to do this because I want to keep my dad safe or I want to keep your grandma safe or I want to keep, um, you know, people we know with compromised immune systems safe. It's not something that I'm really concerned with myself, although, it's not unheard of for 43-year-old men to die from this. Yeah, I've heard a lot of stories about young, healthy 20 to 30-year-old yep. people dying there's, too. There's probably a genetic and then component also to it. people who get it are having lasting effects sure. on their lungs and like skin lesions and things yeah. like that. And I do have like a very mild case of asthma, but I do have it. I use an inhaler from time to time. So it's like I'm not... But, but most of this is kind of like, you know, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of third parties. Here you've got your husband. Um... 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, like usually like there's been two or three times in our whole uh, relationship where we've had these kind of like, wow, it's an intractable problem. Yeah. And usually one or the other has just kind of compromised and been like, well, I think, you, you know, uh, who's more right? And also who cares more about it? Um, but yeah, it, it sucks I mean, that here's we're being thing. put in these positions. Yeah. Here's the thing. If you called your husband's doctor and asked what he thought, mm-hmm. chances are he would say, no, absolutely not. Because of the stomach bleeding and being two hours away from a hospital. Yeah. I mean, that's I think more than COVID right now. It's the stomach bleeding that seems to be the immediate problem that you wouldn't want to be caught. Yeah. Uh, unable to deal with and it's it seems like it it has really serious implications if your husband does get sick or does start bleeding but it also i mean i don't know it's a very it's still even with the increase in cases it's still a very low chance that you're going to get sick it's just that the 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 risk is low but the consequences are extremely high Especially if you've got someone who's in a compromised state like your husband. So it's like, you know, playing a game of Russian roulette where, you know, one out of 200 times instead of one out of one out of 200 times, uh, you're going to experience the consequence. But the consequence is getting your brains blown out. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like playing a Russian roulette with a 200 round revolver. Um you know, and and especially for a guy who's got this many active problems going on and being that far away from the hospital, it's, it's concerning. But you know, um, yeah, I, I, it seems like, it seems like it's, it's, it's just tough because the whole, it'd be one thing if like, you know, there's other people in the family trying to pump the brakes, but apparently they're not taking this as serious. And, you know, if you're the only one that's like the certainty of your husband thinking you're being a reactionary killjoy and that, the, his family thinking about that versus the small but very real chance that you'll experience a severe consequence of that, you know? Yeah. Uh, Let's move on to this next email so we yeah, can talk about it some more. <laughs> uh, from Panama City Papers, my girlfriend's mother wants to take some of her grandchildren to Panama City Beach next weekend and stay for a week. She doesn't want to drive, so she's offered to pay for my girlfriend and her two daughters as long as my girlfriend drives. Because of coronavirus and Florida's terrible job of handling it, seriously, over 2,500 new cases just yesterday in Florida, I'm fully against this and think it's a horrible idea. Now, I don't think it's appropriate for me to make demands or ultimatums regarding her ability to go, nor do I think she should take them seriously or would take them seriously. I'm not a controlling asshat, and she's a strong-willed person. I've repeatedly pointed out why I think this trip is ill-advised and continue to update her on the coronavirus numbers coming out of Florida. Sure, she's appreciating that. Uh, I'm pretty certain uh, they're going to go anyway. I've told her that I won't stop her from going, but if she does, she won't be allowed to come back home. She has lived with me for 14 months now, uh, together for 19, until she's quarantined at her mother's for 14 days after returning from Florida. She thinks this is totally unreasonable, and apparently so does everyone she has told about it. Uh, We recently moved to rural Georgia, where both our families are, and both her and her mother have always taken coronavirus pretty seriously. Neither of them have voiced any opinions that this was all blown out of proportion, thankfully. Uh, I should be noted that she intends to wear a mask indoors when around other people and has generally been pretty good about it at home. I'm concerned with the five children aged 6 to 16. They won't be ordering room service or getting their meals to go. I'm also concerned with the possibility that... uh, uh oh panama city beach pcb i'm like what the fuck gonna uh it's gonna be busy and full of people probably likely my questions are a am i the asshole no 
Uh, B, how would you deal with the situation if one of you decided to take a necessary vacation to unnecessary uh, a, vacation. A Florida beach when it appears to be consisting, uh, consistently posting high new daily positive cases? This is crazy. <laughs> Don't go on vacation right now. Yeah, it's funny you know, because like you're saying that they have always taken coronavirus pretty seriously. And what I think is happening is that um, and I feel with myself, it's like there's a little bit of like, fuck it. If no one's <laughs> going to be doing this, like the CDC, like a uh, medical expert saying that 80 percent of people wear their mask, we would reduce coronavirus transmission to well below our not of one, if not zero <laughs> But when I look around in the general population, like we're at 25 mask wearing percentage and probably falling and everything is reopening. So like, you know, like I talked with uh, Gift Horse, like individual efforts against a systemic problem are not are like spitting in the wind. Um, so I don't think it's unreasonable. Like, I, yeah, I think that's a my perfect- level of like, fuck it is up to I said, fuck it. I'll go spend time with your family last weekend. <laughs> just yeah, we had an outdoor social distance um, uh, 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 Father's Day celebration. Yeah, I feel like I'm really, I'm really digging in my heels here. Like, I get it. Maybe I'll recover, or maybe I won't, or maybe I won't make someone else sick, or maybe no one in my family gets sick. And you know what? That's better than getting anyone getting sick at all or continuing to spread it. Yeah. And that's just the most important fact to me. Yeah. And maybe I'll get sick. Maybe that's a risk I'm willing to accept. Right. But it's not a risk that's, that. you know, the, the reason why this is so tricky is because it's, you go out there without a mask on and suddenly you are infringing upon everyone else's health yeah. and safety. Yeah. And that's what you're doing to other people. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't be allowed. It shouldn't be okay that people aren't wearing masks right now until we're at zero, until we're in New Zealand. If you ever want to go to New Zealand, put <laughs> yeah. a goddamn mask on. Yeah, it's it's really bizarre to see how this thing has been politicized and it's been so easy. Like, uh, seriously, like one person in this whole fucking country could have started wearing a mask at the beginning and like we wouldn't be having this problem. Tens of thousands of people would still be alive if our government had yeah. just acted sooner. And now is a chance because historically we understand that the cases are going to rise again for yeah. the second wave. If perhaps mm -hmm. and the only way to ensure that it doesn't happen just for sure just put yeah. a little piece of fabric over your face mm -hmm. it helps and don't a lot go to i mean because here's the thing is that as much as they maybe will wear a mask and they'll maybe they will get room service or get prepackaged foods that they can clean maybe they do everything right mm -hmm. again there's going to be people out there that aren't yeah and with that many people who said, fuck it, they're all going to be stacked together at the beach. And mm -hmm. if you're just going to be restricted to your hotel room, then mm -hmm. it's not going to be fun vacation at all. Mm -mm. So, hey, maybe skip a vacation this summer or do something local or smaller beach. Yeah. Save it in the bank and do something even bigger next year. Exactly. Or but here's Go the thing. Out. I don't think it's I think it's unreasonable to want to do something this kind of like flagrantly like here, here's the thing. If I'm driving, if I was driving at Cecily uh, late at night or if I was driving with Cecily and it was raining, whatever, she expressed concern about the way I was driving my car. Like, oh, my God, I'm worried that you're feeling going too fast. I think it's a sign of an asshole to be like, well, I don't give a shit. I don't care. Like, it, it doesn't matter if your fear is legitimate or whatever. If your partner is having a very, uh, you know, real or imagined fear. I feel like it's kind of incumbent upon them to take it seriously. So I think it's a fair compromise to be like, well, if you're not 
you know, if, if you want to take this risk, I can't stop you. But I also want you to consider my feelings. I'm very disturbed. And it would mean it would be a ve- it would be a real big show of love and support if you would quarantine at your mom's house and take it seriously. Because the other thing I worry about is like her and her mom getting over there and like, oh, you know, Panama City Papers is fucking soy boy and he's worried about that nah, i'm not you know i'm 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 putting a little bit charge on this but kind of <laughs> right. like oh he's being a dumb you know worry wart and oh we'll just tell you know i mean this is going down to like really bedrock relational trust is your partner going to take your fears seriously is your partner going to respect your boundaries because just like you can't tell her what to do with her and her kids you know if she just demands access to your living space uh, when we know the incubation times and how the stuff spreads. And if the certainty of any one of them gets it, you're all going to get it if you're in the same home. I think that's reasonable. It sounds yeah. crazy. And that's why uh, but, a lot of people. A, yeah, sorry. You know, you, you get people that won't even fucking wear masks and you say, my boyfriend wants me to quarantine at my mother, at my mother's house for 14 fucking days. And they're like, that seems ridiculous. But it's. Med- it's science based and quarantine doesn't mean that you guys are like that she has to sleep under plastic sheets yeah you can still go over there and see each other and do it outdoors do it from six feet away you can still spend time together yeah um you know spray her face with lysol and kiss her it's there's but these options are, these are issues that we're all kind of facing and it it sucks that we're kind of all over the place because there hasn't been a unified voice that people can trust that say, you know, tell them real facts. Um, and it's, man, it's, it's, it's already, you know, this, uh, this, this whole country is already on edge on multi different factors. And this is just, it, it, it sucks. But it's something we've in the last few weeks had to deal with like three separate instances because our families wanting to start doing stuff. And I don't blame mine. I, you know, before I, this Father's Day weekend, I hadn't seen my dad for six months. Right. It and sucks. Even then, we just spent the whole time outdoors and mm-hmm. did as safely as we could. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, it just sucks. And it especially sucks to put, you know, for people having new children right now mm-hmm. or for people in, you know, 19 months. That's a relatively new relationship. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. A little bit more over a year. And that it, it sucks that you have to put that kind of a strain on it. But, mm-hmm. hey, it's proving ground i guess yeah no i mean it's like this is uh you know what what is uh what how are you guys yeah like this is kind of interesting like this is a real thorny issue and how people work this out probably says a lot of stuff about their their relationship mm-hmm. um but yeah it just really sucks because some, you know like uh the other cases they go have a vacation have a great time nobody gets sick and two weeks later they're like haha you big dummy and then you know, oh, well. but that doesn't sound like that bad in the right. course of like a 19 month relationship, two weeks. Right. If uh, you get to be a little bit embarrassed because they say you were a big dummy or you don't get to visit them in the hospital as they die. I don't know. seems yeah. like that's lesser of that evils. <laughs> that's I think I think really people don't understand like how, you know, because recently your grandma's had to have a medical procedure and none of us were even able to visit her in the hospital because nope. it's fucking COVID shit. Right. At the same time, New Zealand is reopening everything because they have zero cases in the whole country, mm-hmm. you know, um, and almost every every Western country. Finally, their cases are trending down, except the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, uh, I like I said, these are these are I, I imagine we'll be in a lot of stuff in this theme and a lot of people like with different um, ways to handle it. I, I'm open to hearing weird tricks to deal with this because yeah. it's an interesting time in history where this is like a 
This is like a, li- a 9-11 type of defining event. It's a rolling 9-11 that never ends. <laughs> right. We're just going to keep talking about like pre-corona, pre-post-corona. and Really? Yeah. Remember the time when we had uh, uh, big uh, cineplexes? Yeah. Remember we had 20 screens in one building and they just like disappeared in one year? I mean, that's kind of the way we could be talking about this stuff. So Yeah, especially with all these... No, I'm not going to go into conspiracy theories yeah. <laughs> about the <laughs> no dystopia. No idea where that's going. Yeah, okay. Um, okay. Let's our moving next... on to our final. Wait, no, not oh. our final. Our second to last. Our penultimate. Penultimate email from Looking Back. My dilemma involves a somewhat recent breakup. I'm a European straight white male. And up until late last year, I was living in Hong Kong, a city that I moved to almost six years ago. Do and we know if this person's from from uh, is Dutch. Oh my that, god! That might change my advice. I think I know where they're going with this. <laughs> All right, I don't hate. We Dutch got people. great advice for you. It's just, it's just an old Austin Powers joke. Just we just hate. We just think. hate their ovens. Yeah. People. Why do people cook and fart so much? It seems yeah. Like such we've been a like weird... super racist against the Dutch people. Like you know, they're like we don't fart under the covers. That's 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 <laughs> that's slander. Slandering an entire culture. My God, I'm uh, so sorry, people in Holland. Uh, around four years ago. I met a wonderful woman, a local Hong Konger. Yep, that's the correct term. And we hit it off from the first date. We were the same age. You were? Are you Benjamin Buttoning? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We shared a bunch of interests. She seemed to really like me for me. I told her on our first date that I wasn't going to be staying in the city for the long term. And that sort of hung over our relationship as the years ticked on. Although I began to fall for her very quickly, some mental health issues came to the fore quite early on. For example, she's very jealous of my ex who had left me because she was much younger and in her estimation prettier. Um, Oof. Yeah, it's not great. Her her jealousy caused a lot of arguments between us and we hit points where she would yell, I would yell, she would storm out, etc. Mm. This quickly became the most fraught and intense relationship I'd ever experienced and I described it to friends as being like a roller coaster with high highs and very low lows. That sounds... That's. I don't know. Do you like roller coasters? <laughs> do you like that terror... <laughs> that that sinking feeling in your stomach when you're going down, you know? You're like just putting your hands up and screaming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After around a year, she began to mellow slowly. While I was always reassuring and tried to build trust with her, I coached her through her anxiety and OCD and told myself that this would all get better as time went on and our bond strengthened. However, somewhere along the way, our relationship became fractured because of the many fights we would have, sometimes over big things, sometimes over tiny issues that got blown out of proportion. We became better at fighting and resolving things as the months went on, but I admittedly began to feel that fighting almost every week had begun to erode the bedrock of our relationship. It'll do that. In the final year, I began to switch off subconsciously. I stopped making as much of an effort, less understanding, and deciding that I needed to stand up for myself more, increasing our conflicts. However, as the end of the year loomed and the clock began ticking, I started to imagine the possibility of ending the relationship after asking this person to move halfway around the world for me. The more I confronted that thought, the more it terrified me. I knew she was still emotionally fragile, and I thought that if we moved together, I would effectively be unable to leave her too great with the mental toll be on her. Mm. Last November, I voiced my doubts, and as I knew would happen, a huge argument ensued. It broke the back of the relationship, and although I had my doubts about leaving and still loved her, I felt that it wasn't right to go on a relationship that I felt unsure about, especially as she wanted kids and was entering her early 30s. Mm. I now look back at all that time at the final year of the relationship during which she was making progress and getting more mentally stable. And I was unconsciously detaching myself from her. 
The rational part of my brain, the part that told me to leave in the first place, tells me that all of this will pass given enough time, but my heart still aches every time I think about her. And I'm quite confident she feels the same way based on the irregular conversations we've had, although very few of them have directly confronted the breakup itself. I guess my ultimate question boils down to, is going back to an old relationship ever a good idea? I'm already devastated at how much I've hurt her, and I don't want to make it worse by reopening old wounds that may be better left shut. Hmm. It sounds it sounds like she might be a little emotionally abusive from reading that. Yeah, it's tough to say because like, you it's, know, jealousy, insecurity, um, controlling, abusive, like that all is like yelling, on a spectrum. Storming out. Yeah. How, yeah, that's the thing. The fact that like you can't have a rational conversation. Like those are very real fears. Like, man, we we have had a little bit of a rocky relationship. And I'm concerned if you leave and go to another country, that pressure that we put on ourselves is going to like, you know, you better have that conversation now before. You, would she rather you wait until six weeks into the move and she's, you know, backslid and gotten like more aggressive and right. stormy? And, and the thing that the thought that leaving her, even though it may not have been explicitly said, the thought of leaving her that, because she might not be able to bear the emotional toll. Mm-hmm. That's another control tap tactic. Mm hmm. Um, and also the idea that like you you leave, but you still love someone like that's almost always true because like it's super unhealthy to stay in a relationship until you hate that person. I, I think some people are so afraid of breaking up that they um, they work themselves up into it. Like they intentionally sabotage the relationship. So there's some big decisive thing or they'll cheat or they'll, you know, start start not living up to any of the responsibilities, whatever. Uh, but, you know, I think the best time to break up is when they're still love where that you can do it, you know, treat them, care for them as an individual and, you know, go into the breakup with civility and empathy um, rather than wait until you're like, fuck that bitch, you know, or fuck that bastard. You, you, you get to that point and then, you know, you're you're fucking enemies. But you got the certainty of like, ah, I knew it was bad and there's no way we could have kept it going. And look at here. It's fall, falling apart. Yeah. And I mean, if you're considering getting back into this relationship, um, which it seems like it might be just kind of one-sided right now because you're considering it. Hmm. But this is a piece of advice that Aaron gave me. Oh, you're going to steal my next point. Oh, were you going to say it? <laughs> no, okay. it's you. This is better this way. <laughs> it's better this way. Um, you have to ask yourself what has changed going back into the relationship. Why, why do you think it'll work this time? And why didn't it work the time before? Because if nothing has changed then it'll be exactly the same. Yeah. And that could be a change that's undergone in you. Like maybe you've gotten super zen about roller coaster riding um, (laughs) and you're ready to, you know, do the Marilyn Monroe thing of (laughs) handling her at her worst so you can deserve her best or whatever. (laughs) Um, Or it could be a change in her. Like, hey, you know, when we got broke up, I started seeing a therapist and I've really started working on some of my personal issues and insecurities. And I'm sorry I put you through that. And you're like, oh, well, she's made some change. Or maybe something else could change where she gets dual citizenship and she could go back and forth to the country without any problems. But if you can't answer with a concrete what has changed, because fun fact, Cecily and I had a previous relationship. (gasps) We went our separate ways for several years. Mm -hmm. 
And then we had that conversation because what had changed in my like when I first was dating Cecily, I had just recently gotten divorced. I had gotten excommunicated from a church. I was literally rebuilding the fabric of my life relationship at a time. And I was very open with the idea like I'm not ready for a serious relationship or to, you know, settle down with one person. Um, and you know, we, we, we parted as friends Mm -hmm. and, uh, so that's the thing that changed from my perspective. Um, but we had a conversation about like, you know, how we change as people because it is kind of like, you know, the idea that you go back to a previous relationship, um, like a security blanket, like it's universally seen as a bad idea because most people don't ask those questions. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you can answer to yourself, uh, or a trusted confidant, because uh, that's what I had. Like I had three or four different guys that interrogated me. Uh, well, okay, so what's why? You know, why are you wanting to get things back together with Cecily? And I had a couple of good answers. Like, well, here's how I changed. Here's how I changed. And here's how the things between Cecily and I have changed. And um, you know, they they all were on board with it. Um, so if you can do that, then then why not try it? Yeah, but if that, if, uh, and I think you also need to establish some boundaries. Uh, how's that? Some some kind of communication boundaries. You know, if you want to talk about... Oh, this is specific to them. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's going back to this. You need to talk about why you can't have a conversation that doesn't devolve into yelling. Mm-hmm. You know, her anxiety and OCD, those are, you know, manageable things that it sounds like she's willing to work on. But the jealousy doesn't have anything to do with that. That's another deep insecurity that she needs to work on. Mm-hmm. And she needs to be feel like she's confident and comfortable with you and mm-hmm. that she trusts you. It doesn't sound like you've given her any reason not to. So why wouldn't she? Mm-hmm. Um, sounds like she's got some 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 damage that's happened to her that she's she's working on, too. Mm-hmm. You have to set up those boundaries because you can't be her therapist and her lover. Right. I mean, you can be her friend and her confidant, but, you know, you can't fix her. Yeah, but but going back to the concept of you have to have something to change. A lot of times when people rekindle things with their ex, it's it's not because anything's changed. It's because I'm lonely, I'm horny. This or, is familiar. Or and I I remember the good times, and because that's it's people tend to be optimists. You remember the good times more than the bad times, and you know you 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 only remember what it felt like when the times are good. Um, and you don't remember what it felt like when times are bad. Um, and on, honestly, that's how I've always evaluated relationships. The second relationships ga- got to be uh, more bad than good. Um, it's time to bail. Mm-hmm. You know, when when you are more dreading seeing that other person or their reaction than you are like looking forward to their uh, uh, company with delight, then that's a problem. And, it, you know, that's, that's also like, you know, long term relationship is different. You know, like I'm not saying that like uh, your partner gets cancer and it's like, ah, oh, fuck this shit. It's no longer fun. It's more like. You know, uh, if you're six to ten months in or a couple of years in a relationship and you had like six good months and then the last three years have been just like stormy thing after stormy thing and tears and anger. And geez, man, what this roller coaster sucks. There's bad roller. This is a son of beast type of roller coaster. <laughs> it's, it's 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 breaking people's necks. It's caused a fatality. It's time to shut it down. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's some uh, obscure Kings Island coaster analogy. It really gamer. <laughs> it's uh, going to land like a like a wet Dutch oven on this. Guy. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it's going to it's going to land like a, 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 a son of beast train pulling into station with the malfunctioning restraint. <laughs> Double down. <laughs> uh, anyway, what's changed? 
Uh, if you can answer that, go for it. If not, just stay in that grief. Because that's what you're doing. You're grieving the end of a relationship that had its good parts and it's got its bad parts. Good luck. Stay strong. Yeah, you'll be fine. Uh, Axe to Grind is our final email. Just started reading the How to Be Anti-Racist after having it referenced to me three times in one week, including by Cecily. It's been a great read so far and has really challenged me to look at myself and my upbringing as a white female. Definitely have had a not racist attitude up until recently and still suffer from assimilation biases. I've committed myself to continue to grow and learn in this area, especially because I have two young children that I want to grow up in an anti-racist household. That said, I'm currently struggling with two thoughts I can uh, hope you can uh, help me sort out. At work, I have an African-American college student give a semi-formal presentation on her business. He's about to graduate two degrees in business and communication, is passionate about her company, and overall a very informative speaker. Um, he has also frequently said ax instead of ask, like let me ax you a question or we must ax ourselves. Every time he said that, I felt myself cringing and took it took me out of the presentation. My limited understanding of being an anti-racist is that we see different races and cultures exist, but we value all equally. But my question is, where does proper English fall when it comes to that? Slang and informal writing, I feel, is perfectly appropriate in most settings, but I always felt in more formal settings like business presentations that proper English is what is expected. I completely understand that proper English is white English. I personally made a determination to not let something like that take me out of the presentation, overall message being presented in the future, but also know that the business world has a lot of old white dudes running it who would look upon my intelligent and empathetic employee as uneducated for saying acts. In situations like that, it's my job to give feedback to help employees get promoted. How do I have that conversation with that young college student? Do I have that conversation? I would encourage you not to. Do not do that. Like, here's the here's the way I look at it. Uh-huh. Um, saying things like acts, there's probably other words that they say differently from you. And you should consider that think of it as something that's more like uh an accent yes um it's a manner of speaking mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that he used the wrong word that would be improper english mm-hmm. he used the right word he just pronounced it differently than you would yeah and you know what those old white dudes can go fuck themselves <laughs> because that's the whole point here to be yeah. not being anti-racist yeah like mean if he was a charming scottish gentleman and he just threw in we you know, like, oh, uh, we've got this one wee problem. Uh, right. You know, like you'd be th- th- those those white dudes would be an asshole. If they're like, oh, I can't hire this guy because he uses funny word. We, you know, right. Or you got a person from UK calling a truck a, li- a lorry or an right. elevator a lift. It's like these are just regional differences. And this is something, honestly, um, as a Midwestern Southern white uh, and a lot of Southern whites feel uh, struggle with this is the idea that a particular way of speaking is ignorant um, or backwards or not proper English. And even pro- what's proper English, um, you know, what the hell does that even mean? Like proper English is over there in London. We don't sound like that, you know, like language changes and grows. Like I, you know, like I was, is ain't a word. Um, it's in the dictionary now. Uh it is so now. so I, I think that like, you know, um, it's one thing if someone is so caught up in like jargon, like, you know, if you have a, an engineer that can't break things down to talk to a customer or an internal client and you want to counsel them, it's like, you know, um, maybe not be such a hard ass when a user is saying they have a problem with their CPU and they're just really talking about their box or, you know, you, you need to, you, but, but like, 
you know, if I, I'm, I'm just thinking of like, if I had a person from New York with like a strong New York accent, and if I'm like, could like you just try yeah. not doing that because it makes people feel uncomfortable? I just, I, I don't know. That's asking an awful lot. Right. Uh, or like, you know, like you said, using a Southern accent and assuming the person is dumb, which is another, another trap that people will fall into. Right. Exactly. It's, so, yeah. And then the thing is, is like I, I see this all the time. Like, you know, almost every time I have a woman on a podcast, uh, I get all this stuff about vocal fry. Now, I actually have a quite pronounced vocal fry, um, you know, that rattle in the back of my voice. But for some reason, every time I have a woman with vocal fry on, holy shit, the, the, everyone's, the, quick to let you everyone's know. quick to let you know. And it's like. You know, we don't say that when there's like so many different types and ways a man can speak on a radio or a podcast and everyone thinks it's cool. But like differences in women like that people are hypersensitive and that's just because um, they're not used to it. You know, Uh, they're not used to that way of speech, what the sound is. And, you know, that's how you can, you know, if, if you lean into that, that's how you start becoming, you know, soft racist. And to the extent that you. Uh, or sexist or whatever. And to the extent that you like, you know what, that's different. And maybe it's not my favorite way. Um, maybe it hits my we- uh, ears a little harshly. But, you know, I think I actually think that's what's cool about people. The fact that they have these like quirks and differences and little bits of their culture. And you can kind of tell where someone grew up with. And maybe someone's worked really hard to get non-regional diction. But, you know, you get a couple beers in them and you can hear the <laughs> Southern come out or whatever. Right. I think it's the melting pot. I pick things out from other people, too. Yeah. Like, who the fuck thinks it's not charming for Scottish people to say we? Right. We barons. Like, that's <laughs> really cool. So I think it's, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I think hearing these people talk. um, you know, hearing the y'alls, hearing the acts, I think that's all part of what's kind of cool about the American experience, or can be, if we just fucking get over some of the shitty aspects of it. Right. Um, and- you know, we have all these varieties and stuff all here in our back door of geography and climates and uh, peoples and cultures. Um, embrace yeah. it. You're doing you're doing a great job. Keep up the work and the reading on that. Yeah, and fucking take it take it to those old dudes that like, are going to have a problem with it. You know. Yeah, if they say, well, why does he why does he talk like that? Then yeah. have them ask him himself. <laughs> yeah. See how that goes. Yeah. Secondly, I've heard Aaron speak frequently about ending the war on drugs to combat racism. Kendi also speaks uh, to how this has been a political tool used to oppress minorities since the civil rights uh, era. There's no denying that the war on drugs, the broken window policy, and other tough-on-crime policies have ravaged the black community and contributed to insanely high incarceration rates and continued impoverishment and oppression. I recognize these policies as racist and they need to end, but I don't hear what replaces them. Making all drugs legal doesn't seem like a good idea. A lot of people won't even wear a mask uh, to save their grandma without there being an enforceable penalty. I worry that without enforceable laws against drugs, social issues like the opioid crisis will get worse. I say that knowing full well that I grew up with a picture of Ronald Reagan on my fridge and that there's an answer out there that I'm just not seeing. Um... You know, so this is like one of those things where like right now it's it's uh, hip to say defund the police. Very rarely when people say that they mean literally we shouldn't have police. There should be no one to call when there's a dangerous situation or there is um, obnoxious and harmful rule breaking and harm coming to societies and stuff. What they're saying is let's 
these these societal problems that we have in terms of poverty and homelessness and, and addiction healthcare. and healthcare that we have been papering over with the police. The fact that like, you know, is there a, a homeless person muttering to themselves in front of my house? Call the cops. Is there someone attacking and murdering me? Call the cops. Um, is there a dispute between two people at a store that can't figure out how who should wear masks? Call the cops. Is there a someone overdosing? Call the cops. Call the cops. Is there a, a person getting beat up by their spouse in the house next to me? Call the cops. Instead of like having that one solution to paper over all society's ills, take that money and divvy it up to other uh, things that can explicitly address that. And I think there's a huge difference between drug legalization, universal drug legalization and like decriminalizing simple possession, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that is something that would make a big difference in the amount of people, you know, like if you want to, um, but, but the, the problem is, is like no one, it's crazy to me because no one says this about alcohol ever, even though alcohol kills Thousands of people every year on the highways. People die by the thousands from alcohol poisoning and chronic cirrhosis of the liver and long-term alcohol poisoning. Hundreds of young people die every year in binge drinking. Um, it's you got fetal alcohol syndrome. You've got birth defects caused. Like this is a fucking terrible, terrible drug that millions of people responsibly engage in. And you have public intoxication and you have all these societal ills that are caused. But we just like that's, you know, because when we made that illegal, people bled in the streets. And for some reason, when we had that all legality and people were bleeding in the streets, they were bleeding in streets that weren't ours, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in areas of town that we didn't go in. And they were people that were very easy to single out and over police because they visually looked different. You know, Um, if there was an Italian American uh, heroin epidemic who the fuck would you start pulling over you know um, other than I don't know guys wearing track suits in Jersey right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. super racist right but I can say that because I have an Italian friend <laughs> and I'm white I thought um, you were going to say because you're wearing a track suit <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know like I, I just feel like um I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of in favor of universal decriminalization and legalization because as as har- as, as horrible as the opioid adem- epidemic is, um, you know how we have functional alcoholics, mm-hmm. people that are drunk all the fucking time. You'd never know. Yeah. I think we'd have functional heroin addicts. The things that cause heroin addicts to break into your car and steal all your shit is because they can't get their fucking heroin. If they had a cheap, reliable, safe place to get their heroin, you'd have functional uh, heroin addicts. And then, you know, when they get to a point in their life that they're like, hey, you know what? This sucks. I need to make a change. They could go down and it's easy to get treatment for it. There's no stigma for it. You can get treatment through your employer. Right. Or if a doctor gets you addicted to heroin because they overprescribed you painkillers, then you could, for instance, have a safe, clean shooting up site. So there would be a lot less transmission of like HIV and AIDS and overdoses in the streets. Or your doctor Things can talk like about safely weaning you off and getting that treatment too. to other stuff. Yeah, like, because you know. right now people aren't getting treatment because, well, one, healthcare is a stupid, stupid yeah. thing in this country. People and are... also it's illegal to yes. have been addicted to, to begin with. Yeah, and, and people start stealing shit because they can't get it. So And you start stealing shit and you start turning to like prostitution and things yeah. like that other illegal means to get 
these drugs and you can't get help for it because society turns their back on you. Yeah. So like I said, I mean, you look at like um, prohibitionist literature and stuff from the time where that, you know, they had like legitimate societal ills that they were trying to address by banning alcohol and it, and it ended disastrously. Um, but because, you know, that's the thing is like the war on drugs was, as you've surmised, um, and, and learned, um, has always been a targeted campaign. Like, you know, we can't make being anti-war and anti-establishment and certainly black illegal. But what we can do is say that certain these, these populations engage in psychedelics more, they engage in smoking marijuana more, Mm -hmm. they might do more like, and you know, and like, um, yeah, it's another one that's like, uh, you look at like the sentencing over like white powder cocaine versus crack cocaine. They're the same fucking drug by weight. They had the exact same. There was this like, you know, crack is a super fucking cocaine. Not really. Um, but one was predominantly used by black people and one is predominantly used by Wall Street executives. And one is punished at 10 or 100 times um, the the same weight as the other. So as scary as it is um, to to go in and say that we are going to, you know, because because what, what the other thing is. You're imagining all this happening in our existing society and you're not seeing like what we would do if we had the billions of dollars that we spend in the war on drugs and we put that into treatment and we put that into our our cities. Redistribute funds from the police and and and, and put that into treatment and, mm-hmm. and uh healthcare and you're not seeing like, you know, people using drugs to escape this situations like can it be an afford healthcare? I'm, I, I, I'm worried that if I lose my job, I'll lose my healthcare. Uh, I'm freaked out all the time. I'm in a lot of pain and my doctor got me like, like you're seeing our existing society with all the problems caused by prohibition and thinking that that will persist past prohibition. Um, and you know, like I said, there's ways you could do that. It would be a fucking disaster. Like if you just legalized all drugs, but the society was the brutal hellscape gauntlet that is it, it has become, um, you know, who knows? That might be really bad. You don't put that money. You get that money back in tax rebates instead of like, you know, redistributed into where it be is needed in the community. Mm-hmm. But if we do it smart, um, you know, when we uh, it, it, it's, it's not like the problems of alcohol ever went away. It's just we saw how bad things got. When you try to tell people what they can and can't do with their own bodies and you criminalize something that most people saw as like, sure, if you take it too far, it's bad, but that can be applied to anything. And boy, just just, you know, there's like a no brainer shit like psychedelics and uh, marijuana like that should have been descheduled yesterday. Um and you can baby steps where you could decriminalize simple possession of opioids and then still go after the big, scary drug dealers. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to make sure that the local politicians don't do stupid shit like classifying a dime bag as dealing. Yeah. You know, oh, my God, the guy the guy had, uh, you know, drugs in a baggie ready to go. Like, you know, if you want to go after someone moving weight across borders and stuff. But eventually, you know, that still makes that shit really miserable in South America and Central America. Right. You know, because that's the other thing we don't really talk about. A lot of these countries are fucked because of our drug consumption. Like their societies are ran by drug lords um, and there's public executions and crazy shit because, I mean, you know, watch Narcos or Breaking Bad. Um, But we don't tie. It's always about what we're doing to our society. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe some of that stuff helped. Do you have any other? No, that's that's all I got. 
Very okay. Well but I appreciate you, um, you know, uh, taking the effort to wrestle with these feelings rather than be uh, reactionary and just yeah. be like, oh, this is all fucking crazy shit. Ah, blah, blah, you know, I'm not going to listen to it anymore. It's, it takes a lot of... Um, Putting um, in the work and doing the reading like sh- you're doing. Yeah, and like intellectual confidence to to um, to, to, to do those self-inquiries. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for listening. Again, Aaron is currently releasing Three Right Turns weekly, so if you want to hear more stimulating conversations like the... The opioid crisis is uh, three right turns material there. You can repurpose that into a whole three right turns uh, uh, podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm almost done with the six week sprint. And I'm yeah. kind of looking forward to it because it's been it's 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 been a lot. Um, For the time being, you can get a new episode of that every Wednesday. And I will be back with Aaron in two weeks for another one weird trick. If you have feedback for us, have any requests for one weird tricks uh, to improve your life, love and happiness. You can email us at OWT at We're on all of the social medias at SwizzBolt as well. I want to take a moment here to say thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. We cannot do this without you. You can become a patron if you are not already at patreon.com slash Right now, I want to especially thank all of our Fred Level patrons by name. Arvin Rao, James Taylor, Greg Rasp, Kira Grushow, Jared Harrelman, Angelo Morano, Mark Hahn, Jordan Hoyt, Byron Rasmussen, Laura Luthi, and George P. Burdell. You can also find Swizzbold themed merch at merch.swizzbold.com where you can get our Swizzbold One Weird Trick or Three Right Turns logos on anything you want. Um, our next live stream, Save the Date, will be on Tuesday, July 7th at 8 p.m. It's next week, coming right up. You can watch and join us at patreon.com slash swizzbold and become a patron to be a part of those live events. You can watch our past live streams there as well. It's and a lot of them now. Yeah, it's a lot of them. It's like hours, six, seven, eight. I don't know how long we've been doing this. It's November. We've we been doing this since November. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Aaron, have we been doing this since <laughs> Am I November? years old? Uh- <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you for listening. Happy 4th of July. Please don't go anywhere and do anything. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I usually tell people like don't blow off your fingers and toes, but don't don't get infected and get in an emergency room and need a ventilator in states far away from your home. Yeah, yeah, like uh, just you know, just like this year, maybe maybe lay lay low, lay back, save the money for a real nice vacation next year. Invest in palm trees, put Christmas lights on them, and have a party in your own backyard. We just want you and your we dog. want Christmas themed Hawaiian shirts. Yes. And tropical Midwestern Christmases in July. All of it. We'll see you on the next one weird trick. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.